0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Rounds series. Uh, we have a, a really, really important, uh, maybe sobering, but very important Grand Rounds today. This is one of those that are state mandated, so this will help you with your licensing accreditation. Uh, and just remember, you can also get MOC Part Two credit as part of, of this series. Uh, so thank you for joining us. I know we have many of you online, and I'm sure that list is going to grow uh, over the next few minutes for, for this particular series. Uh, again, uh, you know, we're moving forward. Uh, this is a, a tough time here in, in in the U.S. Tough time in Connecticut because of COVID-19. You have to hang in there, uh, two three months, and then we'll begin to see uh, some great improvements. And we heard some great news yesterday about the vaccine. Uh, there is a the, the Pfizer product, which is an mRNA vaccine, uh, showed 90% efficacy in the early version of this. Of course, m- much more information is still needed before we can use it reliably, and it still doesn't have FDA approval, but we are moving forward. Hopefully, we'll have vaccine for frontline providers. They are healthcare providers sometime in early January. We're working with the health department uh, very quickly to uh, get things up and running here at Connecticut Children's, and uh, again, as soon as we have information about that, we'll let you know uh, as the vaccine becomes available for, for all of you. And so we're very hopeful that this is going to take us in the right direction, but please, really important. Uh, Don't forget, you know, this vaccine, which is the mask, is one of the most effective vaccines. Uh, Personal responsibility for each one of you to make sure that you stay uh, protected. So that's my message today. Um, There's hope, hope moving forward. Uh, Now, uh, log in on Friday for the Ask the Expert session. I think Dr. Shriver will have some new information about this vaccine and other COVID-related topics. And John always brings uh, the latest and greatest, so please join us for that. Today we have uh, uh, an outstanding presentation uh, from uh, two uh, uh, guest members, uh, that Maria Guzman and Annie Stockton-Zabrowski, who will be uh, speaking on the topic of domestic violence. But for that, I'm going to ask Dr. Nina Livingston to come up and introduce the Grand Rounds. Uh, all of you know Nina. Nina's been with us for, for a number of years. She's the head of our SCAN division uh, somebody who I admire, who really is a champion for, uh, for advocacy uh, and, and for protecting our children, protecting uh, uh, our population, and really uh, speaking about this topic uh, widely. She's created, a, a, I think, one of the best programs uh, in the country uh, that continues to grow with a great team. So I'm very proud of what she has done. I, I'm always amazed at uh, the way she does it, the determination and, you know, in a situation that's very hard, very hard to work on this topic. So Nina, Uh, Thank you for everything that you do for us, uh, especially now in the COVID era. So she's going to tell us a little bit about uh, our, our two speakers, and then we'll pass it on to them. So Nina.
1: Thank you very much for that introduction and um, welcome everyone and thanks for tuning in for this important topic. So um, we do have some great speakers today. Of course, we have in our state, in Connecticut, a very strong domestic violence coalition, the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and both our speakers today are part of CCADV. Um, Maria Guzman is going to be the, I'm going to introduce both the speakers now, and then they'll go ahead and speak. And the first person you're going to hear from is Maria Guzman. Um, Maria Guzman got her BA from the University of Minnesota, and early in her career, she worked in homeless shelters and employment centers. Um, In 2016, she started working in domestic violence in Connecticut um, at the Center for Family Justice in Bridgeport, where she was the coordinator of their crisis and housing services. Of course, the, the Center for Family Justice is one of CCADV's partner agencies in Bridgeport. And then in February of this year, she assumed directorship of Safe Connect, which is CCADV's new statewide hotline system about which she's going to tell you today. And um, Safe Connect has already made great strides under her leadership, um, and it could not come at a better time given all the stresses on Connecticut families in the pandemic. The second person who's going to talk to you about another new set of services from CCADV is Anne Stockton-Sabrowski. Anne uh, got her BS at UConn and a Master of Public Administration from the University of New Haven. And early in her career, she was the housing coordinator for an aid service organization. She then moved on and worked as the community impact Uh, director for the United Way of Southeastern Connecticut. And in that capacity, she was program director for a rapid rehousing and shelter diversion program. Um, And uh, she served on the executive committee of the Eastern Connecticut Coordinated Access Network. She joined CCADV in 2019 and is now working as their director of housing advocacy. And they have some really exciting new housing services. So um, given these new initiatives that they have, the statewide uh, hotline of Safe Connect and the new housing services, I really wanted to make sure that um, clinicians are aware of these new services and can be offering them to our families. And with that, I'm going to let Maria take it away.
2: Thank you, Dr. Livingston. Uh, thank you for having us today. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. So, I'm um, just going to start uh, by providing a little bit of background uh, about Safe Connect and why um, uh, uh, we decided to go with this new platform. Um, so, you can go to the next slide right away. We actually have our PSA uh, for Safe Connect that I just included that can be accessed online. Uh, you should be able to click on that. Hopefully, the link is working. If not, that can be accessed. It's actually just available on uh, YouTube, our PSA, in both English and in Spanish. And so um, this is just a little snapshot of all of our services, um, an overview of the services that we provide statewide through our membership, our 18-member organization sites. Um, we serve over 35,000 victims per year. Um, most of the victims uh, come to us through our um, uh, court advocacy services in the criminal court. Um, we are over 30,000 crisis calls a year Our shelters are of course always operating at over capacity and that seems to be one of our greatest needs, but it actually is um, one of the areas where we serve the fewest number of individuals. Um, That is such a uh, scarce resource across the state. We we, um, house approximately uh, 2,000 victims per year. So that just gives you a little bit of a a picture um, of what our um, services are looking like throughout the state. Um, And we have approximately uh, 400 advocates who work throughout our membership. You can go to the next slide. So uh, historically, our 18 member organization sites have uh, a traditionally managed all of their own hotlines. Um, so that's 18 uh, different hotlines throughout the state. And then we had a statewide English hotline and a statewide Spanish hotline. So there are many different points of access for serv- um, to services for victims throughout the state, which could get a bit confusing at times. Um, you know, if you have a victim who's at a doctor's appointment in Hartford, but they actually live in New Haven. You know, are they supposed to be calling our interval house program or our program, um, the Umbrella Center for Domestic Violence Services? Um, so we got to a point where it seemed like we could, um, you know, streamline this a little bit since we all um All of these programs do operate, you know, kind of under the guidance of CCDV. We administer standards for all of these programs. And, um, and, you know, there was just an opportunity we felt to improve um, how victims were able to access services and make things a little bit easier. So you can go to the next slide. So we um, developed a communications, telecommunications task force to really kind of assess where um, services were at in terms of uh, our hotlines. Um, we surveyed a number of advocates and survivors to talk about their experience um, accessing uh, services through the hotline. You know how effective was the call? Any concerns they had about calling in? and where we could uh, possibly improve. And given the uh, rapid kind of evolving uh, technology and modes of communication, um, it seemed like it was just time to kind of, um, you know, get on board with those other platforms, such as email and texting, as many of our our, uh, clients, you know, don't have access to, um, to calling at all times, you know, that's not always a safe, uh, safe option. Um, some of our, our clients are only able to, you know, uh, text via Wi Fi. And so we really we realize we're missing a lot of folks um, for those reasons and not having those platforms available. Um, we also for our advocates, um, many of them are. were answering the hotlines in shelter um, after hours, after our um, member organization sites uh, closed down for the day. Those hotlines were often transferred to our shelter sites and our advocates are answering uh, hotline calls while trying to attend to the needs of, the, of the residents and shelter, providing transportation to residents, um, all while trying to, you know, go to the bathroom and get their paperwork done themselves. So, um, it's again was kind of an opportunity to reassess things, and we decided to move forward with the the Safe Connect platform and really streamline services and bring all of this to one um, one hub. So you can go to the next slide. Uh, So this this really allowed us to streamline all of these various points of access throughout the state to just one uh, comprehensive, one coordinated um, system. So, you know, that... Currently, all of those other hotline numbers do still exist because, as we when we launched Safe Connect in November of last year, um, we did not want to, you know, immediately um, eliminate all of those phone numbers that have, you know, been in the communities for years and years. Um, So, those phone numbers are still out there and available to call um, for. The foreseeable future, they are all just rolled in right now to um, to Safe Connect, and eventually, once Safe Connect, you know, is out in the community for a long time, people are used to us. They know that they can just call our statewide hotline number, the eight 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 number then at some point we will be able to phase those numbers out. Um, But right now, if you call any of those uh, numbers throughout the state, you will reach a domestic violence advocacy coordinator with Safe Connect. Um, So you can go to the next slide. So we um, really wanted to focus our efforts as well on um, improving access for traditionally underrepresented, underserved communities in the in the state. So we made sure when we were hiring, we had 80% of our uh, advocacy coordinators are bilingual in both English and Spanish. Um, we have uh, coordinators who come from over 10 countries and all five continents. Um, we also have on-call. Uh, clinical support for the advocacy coordinators as well. So in those um, uh, challenging calls where there is a, uh, you know, possibly substance uh, use disorder um, going on as well, uh, mental health needs and concerns, possible suicide, suicidal ideation. Um, we have that support available as well uh, to kind of, you know, really assess what's going on with the individual. And if we, um, you know, need to refer to some additional more um, uh, uh, immediate crisis support aside from the domestic violence piece of things, So um, we wanted to make sure that this was a very, very well-supported program. Um, We have our um, advocacy coordinators received uh, extensive kind of three week um, onboarding and training uh, when they were hired last um, October before we launched in November. And as part of their roles, they are receiving ongoing Um, capacity building, and training in specific areas that um, kind of intersect with all of the needs that our our victims and clients experience. So whether that's immigration, um, uh, again substance use, mental health, uh, civil legal advocacy, um, criminal court advocacy, Basic needs, government benefits, housing—all um, of those kind of different areas—we uh, make sure that they have a really strong sense of what the systems in Connecticut look like, so that they can respond appropriately if any of our, um, you know, anyone is calling with a variety of questions and needs that, um, you know, in, intersect with the the domestic violence that they are experiencing. Because that's rarely the case that that is uh, the only thing that the person. It, is experiencing when they reach out to us and their only concern. Um, Oftentimes, the domestic violence is not the primary concern. So we really wanted to make sure that um, our advocacy coordinators were fully um, equipped and comfortable in kind of dealing with all of those different areas. Um, You can go to the next slide. Uh, So just to um, Give you a, an idea of who is staffed with, with within Safe Connect. So we are kind of an arm of CCADV now. Um, uh, I am the director of Safe Connect, and I also have two co directors on um, my project uh, Joanne Vitarelli, she's the director of quality assurance for Safe Connect and CCDB, and Kai Belton is the director of uh, clinical services for Safe Connect. So she oversees a team of these uh, on call clinicians that are providing 24 7 support to Safe Connect as well. I have four program managers Terry, uh, Zimara, Levett, and Dylan, and there's always Um, a program manager on as well, providing that um, 24-7 support to our our 26 full-time advocacy coordinators. So um, I just want to make sure that you have the names of, you know, all of the directors and our program managers in the event that you you would prefer to reach out directly with a question or, um, you know, have any concerns, anything like that. Um, You have all of our names and, um, you know, our emails as well. So... You can go to the next slide. And so this is just to give you a sense of, um, again, the countries that we represent within Safe Connect and the current languages our staff speak. Um, We're very lucky to have a very diverse staff um, that come from, um, over again, over 10 different countries. across the world, Kenya, Senegal, Bahamas, Haiti, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Guatemala, Mexico, United Kingdom, Ecuador, Venezuela, India, Pakistan. Um, So we have um, access to all of these different um, languages. If we do not speak a particular language, uh, we of course have language line available as well as uh, kind of a backup to fill those other needs. But um, this is currently who we have on staff right now and um, we are continuing to look to expand um, the languages that we speak as we are moving forward uh, into year two of safe connect so and you can go to the next slide so, um, really, anyone who calls Safe Connect, we are going to make sure that um, we are connecting you with the appropriate resource, whether it is uh, domestic violence services or not. Um, so, we are, of course, serving victims and survivors regardless of age, ability, gender identity, um, racial, ethnic identity, socioeconomic status, immigration status, as very important. Um, you know, that is not something. Um, you know, we will offer connection to resources for those things, um, but it is not something that um, would prohibit somebody from accessing our services. All of our services are, are free and confidential. Um, friends, family, we often get calls from folks who are um, concerned about a loved one who's potentially experiencing um, abuse and just wants guidance, support, And, of course, professionals um, who are uh, just wondering how to handle particular situations, looking for guidance, um, looking to connect a client um, or patient uh, to supports. And so really anyone. And and oftentimes we get calls from folks who are not in any of these categories. And like I said, they just need, um, you know, access to Maybe government benefits, resources, and things like that. So um, whoever calls us, we are going to make sure that we are uh, listening, determining what the need is, um, triaging, and making sure that they get to the, their next best place. And every single um, call that we um, that we comes in through Safe Connect gets passed through. And by pass-through, I mean um, uh, just a record of it goes to our member organization site. So that even if that individual t- isn't looking for services today, if they happen to you know, walk through our member organizations program, their, their doors the next day, um, you know, they have a record that they reached out to us and um, you know, we really are kind of acting as the point of triage for that uh, member organization site at that, during that call. And you can go on to the next slide. So there's always going to be a live greeting. Um, we are, you know, really focusing on what is cons- um, what the victim is concerned about in that moment. Um, focusing on making sure that they have options for staying safe and are staying and are safe in that moment. Um, kind of immediate safety is is that primary concern that we are focusing on. Um, we are. You know, assessing assessing all of those needs and determining you know if somebody is is in need of safe housing. Um, we are offering victim compensation, um, explaining kind of all of those comprehensive services, counseling support groups um, that our member organization sites provide, legal advocacy. We have the ability now to um, assist with online restraining order applications through through Safe Connect. Um, and any other community-based resources, and of course that warm handoff to our uh, member organization uh, program. So, you know, we're not just providing that um, quick patch through or a um, just another phone number to our program. We are, you know, providing that full support on the phone, getting their information. Um, and making sure that that gets passed on to our site so they know exactly what that person needs and can kind of pick up from there. Um, so it's a really smooth process. And you can go to the next slide. So I just have a few different scenarios um, that we'll go through really quickly here um, that you can you know, ask some question about questions, additional questions about at the end um, after Annie's presentation. And so you can go to the next slide. Um, so a victim is 70 years old and has cancer. He discloses that his wife, um, scratched him on the face and took away his medication and car keys. He had to walk two miles to a store to call the police who took him to the hospital. And so really kind of the theme in all of these that, um, I, I, the point of, of all of these scenarios is to, to call Safe Connect, um we would be able to, you know, help determine if that individual is in need of um, safe shelter, if the person um, should be connected to, um, you know, elder abuse services, um, intimate partner violence with the elder uh, community is not necessarily something that we um, are mandating reporters for, but we um, would certainly explore that as an option and a resource for housing, pot- um, potentially. Um, and we would, you know, be working with you, hopefully, to, you know, secure any sort of medication um, that this individual may need if they aren't safe returning home and that sort of thing. So we're going to be kind of talking through all of those options for for safety and kind of making sure that we're helping this individual get to the, the next best place and safe place. Uh, victim discloses that her ex-girlfriend has been showing up to appointments and that she uh, that she has scheduled she's unsure how she keeps finding her but she thinks she might be in the parking lot right now Um, so this is something that certainly happened before and we can you know help to arrange um, you know work with you if you call us to um, you know see if there's an Alternate route for getting this individual out of the office building. If again they need a safe place to go, we can assist with transportation to make sure that that happens. Um, you know, again, if she wants to um, file for restraining order online right then and there, or um, talking about what the situation at home looks like and how we can, you know, make sure she's a little bit safer if she goes back home with this individual. Um, If she is living with her um, and they've broken up, otherwise, you know, if, um, uh, you know, we need to call the police, things like that. So we're going to kind of explore all of those possible options um, and see what the individual wants to do and feels comfortable with doing. And we can help with calling the police um, and all of those different things. So again, call Safe Connect. We're going to help navigate this. And the next one, woman discloses she was hit by her husband right after coming home late uh, from work last night. She did not call the police because she was afraid what else he might do. Her eight-year-old son was present. They've been dealing with this for a while now and knows what can happen when her husband gets that way, and there are guns in the home. Um, so this, this is a situation where, you know, again, call us. We, of course, have a um, um we are mandated reporters um but we we are gonna think through this this situation in terms of what is safest for this family and this individual um and talking through if a report needs to be made on your end um you know would how would how do we make sure that the family is safe um you know once dcf becomes involved and how can we do that in a way that doesn't you know um make this the her husband even even angrier and put them even at greater risk. Um, so again, call us, we will talk through all of these options and these kind of potential scenarios to make sure that um, the woman is as comfortable as possible and well informed about what's going to happen next potentially and what her options are. And um, victim discloses wanting help for her girlfriend who has threatened suicide multiple times when she has tried to end the relationship. Victim's friends and family uh, don't know that they're dating, and victim is afraid that her girlfriend will lose her job if anyone finds out about the abuse. Um, so, again, this is a situation just call us, you know, um, provide us as an option. Maybe that individual is not ready, willing to talk to anyone about this, um, but, um, you know, it. And that's totally okay. Um, but if you're providing that, that information and resource for us, um, you know, they'll know that we're available if they do at some point feel comfortable either to reach out, you know by calling, um, texting, emailing, or live chatting. And next slide. Um, so again, these are just some important reminders. We are mandated reporters for uh, children and folks with disabilities. Um, somebody does not have to you know um, provide their full name or real name to contact us Um, we just need a name and a way to follow up with them if they're interested in services we will serve any victim all of our services are completely uh, voluntary confidential and free and um, one of the biggest ones is um, shelter requests which there may be questions about this at the end we are providing assessment for that that is it for me. Thank you. Um, so this um, we do have just some information about our social media and ways to um, download some of the uh, the images and uh, um, in our social media toolkit and in this presentation. So these are our um, social media handles, and the next uh, upcoming slides have our um, toolkit information and brochures. go to the next one.
3: Thanks, Maria. I'll I'll jump right in on our our rapid rehousing presentation. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Annie Stockton-Sabrowski. I'm the director of housing at CCADV, and um, I'm here to talk today about our new, well, relatively new rapid rehousing program um, uniquely designed for uh, survivors uh, survivors of domestic violence and human trafficking. Um, You can go to the next slide so this project it's been really exciting to get started it it started um july of last year and maria was talking about early in her presentation how our shelters are at 123 percent capacity Um, so really housing is such an important need for families that we serve Um, i mean 50 percent of all homeless women report that domestic violence was the immediate cause of their homelessness and really um, Stability and safety, I mean, housing and stability and safety, and I would say health, you know, they all go together. So, having a resource available to house families who are experiencing domestic violence is so important. And although we are able to shelter families um, and individuals, Our our resources limited and also sheltering is not the solution right so sheltering is a temporary fix for someone who needs immediate safety. But if we're looking at long term stability for our families, it's, it's been great to have this opportunity to provide long-term housing for families, either, you know, from the community or once they leave the shelter, a safe place for families to go. And our families really have unique needs in terms of, you know, a lot of them never had access to finances. They haven't been able to work. um, Their credit scores have been destroyed. um, They're really limited in terms of where they can live. So we have a lot of of, um, just, you know, unique things that we need to look at when we're talking about, How do we house families? Where can we house them? Um, How do we help them with income so they can stay in that housing? So it's been an interesting project to create um, such an important opportunity and an important resource for the families we serve. Um, You can go to the next slide. So last year I mean this started in 2018 um, because of the unique needs of domestic violence survivors um, HUD recognized that and they they put out a grant opportunity specifically to support survivors of domestic violence um, so in the state of Connecticut what happens is when HUD puts out money for a new housing funding um, it funnels through the Connecticut State Department of Housing so they serve as the uh, grantee for this project but then the work is subcontracted subcontract excuse me subcontracted out to the Connecticut coalition against domestic violence so we administer the project um, and we're able to administer it statewide and what we do is we subcontract out the work with our um, 18 member sites and we also have a subcontract with the connecticut institute for refugees and immigrants and the connecticut alliance to end sexual violence so this way we're able to um Have access, you know, families all over the state have access to this program. Um, Families who are victims or survivors of human trafficking have access. Uh, Families who are victims of sexual violence can have access to this project. Um, So um, we really were able to really serve the entire state and to serve families who have several different. Different um, needs, and so, so they have several access points. Um, and what we do is we work collaboratively with our homeless system. So we have housing providers that have expertise in locating apartments and work, finding landlords. Excuse me, landlords that really understand, you know, and have compassion for serving people who maybe have no income or you know need some time to 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 restart things. Um, so we work with the homeless system to be able to provide this service statewide. Um, Next slide. So to be eligible for this program, this is what I think is really exciting about this program. Um, So for typical HUD programs for housing programs, you have to be homeless, literally homeless. So you have to be, you know, living in a shelter or, you know, living in a place not meant for habits, human habitation, such as a car in the streets um, in an abandoned building. But this project, because it was, you know, uniquely put out by HUD as, you know, available for survivors of domestic violence, Um, this, this project, the the eligibility for this project is you have to be fleeing or attempting to flee domestic violence. You have no other residents and you lack the resources and support networks to obtain other permanent housing. Um, So you don't have to be literally homeless, you just have to be fleeing or attempting or wanting to flee domestic violence. Um, So Going through our domestic violence member organizations, we just need verification in writing that you are fleeing or attempting to flee domestic violence, you do not have to have income to enter this program so this is where the the housing piece comes in where we have experts that work with landlords to try to help get you leased up whether or not. You have income um, and you do not have to be a citizen. So, we work with a lot of families who are undocumented, um, and that's been a great opportunity for a lot of our families. Um, And I have here a note family is self defined by program participants. So, we do have a requirement that we serve families. So, we're not serving single individuals in this project right now. We're hoping to in the future, but um, it's for families. So, and that can mean a couple, it can mean um, a mom with a kid, a dad with a kid, but but family is really self-defined, so it may be someone that has uh, is taking care of a relative. It may be a mom with her adult son. Um, flex, so there's really flexibility around what family means. Um, it's just at this time, we're limited in that we're not serving individuals. It's for it's a family, uh, program for families. Uh, next slide. So I want to talk a little bit about what fleeing is. I don't, I don't have scenarios that I can share with you right now because our program is still so new about families that we've been able to enroll, but I think it's important to understand what is fleeing or what is attempting to flee. That's something that we, um, you know, we have to talk through that a lot ourselves. So at the end of the day, when we're talking about who's eligible and who's fleeing or attempting to flee, it's not about leaving a place. Um, it's really about leaving abuse control or manipulation. and it's really unique, unique to each victim. So for some it's a quick process, right? You have to get out and you get out quickly and for others it takes a really long time. You have to find when it's safest, when it's the right time, when it's you know when it's the right time for you, when it's the right time for your kids. So what I love about this project is we're not and, and some states do this, they'll say, okay, if you're fleeing domestic violence, we're only going to accept families who, are coming from a DV shelter, but we have not limited it to families coming from DV shelter. So um, we will take families in the program who were in shelter, but we'll also take families who are currently living with their abuser um, and they could own their own home. They could be you know, on another lease already living with someone. um, And we try to seamlessly transition someone so they can move from that current house or current apartment directly into a new apartment. Um, Sometimes people in their fleeing process, they may have left but they're temporarily staying with friends or family. So you're also eligible if you're still in the process of fleeing, but you're temporarily staying with friends or family. Um, you can be, like I said, you can be in shelter or staying in a place that's not meant for human habitation. So we've served several, about 60% of the families we served last year did come from shelter. I believe um, one or two families were living in their car. So that was great that we were able to take those families in, Um, So let's see, they don't need to be leaving the home. So, oh, so, you know, like I said, they can be staying with friends at the time. They can be staying with the abuser. Sometimes the abuser has already left. Um, Maybe the abuser went to jail, but now they're in a position where they're in this apartment and they don't have any income because their abuser had the income. So we work with families to stabilize them in that apartment while we can find them something cheaper that they can afford on their own. Um, the one thing I'll say in terms of fleeing and who's eligible, this is not a prevention program. So it's really not a program for families who had a history of domestic violence in the past, but now they're getting an eviction notice or they're late on their rent. This is really an opportunity for families who are currently trying to get out of a dangerous situation, are currently trying to flee, be able to get them from one place to another place. So it's 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 not for families with a history of DV that are now homeless or almost homeless. You have to be in the process of fleeing or attempting to flee. Next slide. This is quickly, I'll just go over. Maria already showed a map of our our service area. So we do have our 18 sites all over the state. We also work with the Connecticut Institute for Refugees and Immigrants. um, And then we break up the state in terms of housing locations. So we work with these sites. We work with New London Homeless Hospitality Center. We work with Journey Home, Columbus House, Operation Hope, and we have a new partner, we're also working with new opportunities. So they really work in partnership with us to to help our families find housing quickly. And that's been a great partnership with us to be able to collaborate with our homeless system to provide services quickly um, and really seamlessly so we can get families into housing as rapidly as, as possible. Next slide. So what rapid rehousing is it's a housing first model so what we're doing is, is we're trying to get families again as rapidly as possible into safe housing. Um, so housing first really means there's a low barrier to service so we're not saying that you have to be clean and sober we're not saying that you have to have income first um, there's no expectation that like you don't have to be housing ready you just need to need housing. Um, So once we get you housed, then we can work on all the other stuff later, we can help you find that job, we can help you with income. Um, But we want to make sure you get stable in housing before anything else. So we actually have a lot of families that enroll in the program with no income. And that's something we work on while they're in the apartment. Just enough assistance. So the idea is this isn't a certificate program. This isn't section eight. This isn't something that if you get, you get for life. The idea is that we're going to provide you a minimum amount of assistance. So it's like your jump. It's your next step. So we can provide you short term assistance. We can pay your security deposit. We can pay your first month's rent. And then slowly we you know we we reduce that so you start paying a portion and then we pay a portion until ultimately you're able to pay rent on your own so instead of just jumping in and giving people 100% assistance you know forever we're really taking this one month at a time so the first month how much do you need the second month and then you taper off until people are self sufficient um again housing find and location assistance so really working with landlords to negotiate to help to help people view apartments, some people are moving into an apartment for their first time. They've never looked at an apartment. They've never picked an apartment by themselves. So helping people look at apartments, make sure they understand what to look for, how to fill out an application, how to negotiate with a landlord. We often you know, work with landlords to try to reduce the rent or explain why someone might have a bad credit history, explain why someone has no income, but we're going to work closely with them to, to help them get an income. Um, And through this process, we provide case management. So again, it's those support services. So it's not just providing financial assistance, but also providing them support, connecting them to community resources, helping them find a job, connecting them to all the DV supports they need so they can find housing, maintain housing, and then stay stable in that housing. Um, I do have in here, it says it's not a poverty alleviation program. So we're really not designed to, you know, help people, you know, make a ton of money or I mean, the idea is we want you to be stable. So once we feel like even if it's struggle, if you can afford that rent on your own, um, we want to be able to to get you to that place where you can at least pay your rent. Um, and that's another it's, so it's a limited program. Um, and we just try to give people just what they need to get them to that next step. Next slide. So what we're trying to measure in this program and what our our required measurements are. So we wanna make sure we always have a utilization rate of 90%. Um, We, after our families graduate the program, um, because it's a temporary program, our goal is to help them with case management to the point where um, they won't return to homelessness. So they have the skills they need to, to stay in that housing that we've helped them secure. Uh, We want to make sure that 85 percent served annually have an income um, and maintain or hopefully increase that income. We want 85 percent of individuals to have health insurance and um, 65 percent of individuals will be gainfully employed in this program because, again, at the end of the day, it's all about stability. We're only we're here temporarily. So what can we help you and what do you need so long term you will be stable in this program? So the next slide uh, talks about our results for year one. So they're very exciting. So our project just started last year, brand new statewide project, but actually um, it started July one, but we didn't get our funding until October one. So what we were able to accomplish the first year was phenomenal. So we predicted that we'd be able to serve 81 families in the first year. And we actually ended up serving 117 families, which was, which was phenomenal. And I think that shows just how needed this service is in Connecticut. I mean, going back to what Maria talked about 123% capacity at our shelters, um, and just recognizing that in from October to the end of June, we were able to help 117 households flee domestic violence and get housing on their own. Annual utilization rate, we're supposed to be at 90%. And so with serving 117 households, we're at 144% capacity. And I put that slide in there just because I wanted people to understand that this is, this program isn't an automatic for every single person that needs it because we have limited slots. So I just wanted people to recognize we're, we're going above and beyond and we're trying to help as many families as we can. But we too, just like shelters, there's a point where we're, we fill up our slots too. Um, let me jump down. Um, We were able to hit the mark with most of our benchmarks. I'll talk about the insurance. So um, the state benchmark is that 85% will have health insurance, and we were able to hit 99%, which is great. Um, And I can tell you that the 1% that didn't have health insurance were our families that were undocumented, that just weren't eligible for state insurance programs. Um, we're still working towards the employment piece, I think, especially with COVID, the fact that we hit a 45% employment rate was, was remarkable, considering sort of what we were up against this year. And our goal is to house families in the program in 30 days or less. So there's a state goal of 30 days. Um, the federal goal is actually 45 days. So we're right in between what the state's looking for and what the federal government's looking for. Um, but really, we want to either help people quickly get from one apartment to another without, you know, as as quickly as they can, or if they're in shelter, we want their shelter stay to be as short as possible. So we were very happy that in the first year, again, especially considered what we were facing With COVID, um, I think it's phenomenal that we were able to house families in 39 days. Um, And we want people to be in the program. All right, ideally, it'd be six months. Some need the program for a year. Some need it for just two months. Um, But our benchmark is six months. And um, for those who exited the program, they were in the program for an average of 65 days. So I think our numbers have been really good the first year. They show the need, and um, it shows us how well we've been able to, to meet that need. Next slide. Um, We also do a survey to find out how people in the program feel that the services were that they were offered. So 94% felt that they received the support services they needed, Um, 88% were able to choose their apartment, which is so important. We don't tell them where they have to live. We work with them to make sure that we are finding something that they like, that they feel safe in, that they're comfortable in. So um, that's important that we're making sure that survivors are the ones that are choosing the place where they live. Um, 94% of survivors felt safer in their new apartment, and 97% felt that their children, um, stated their children felt safer. 68% of survivors stated that their health improved after moving into their new apartment. Next slide. So how to get connected to this program. So um, the first step would be to call Safe Connect. So the important, the the reason that's important is because if if you call Safe Connect, so you could call on behalf of a family or the family could call themselves, but really we want to make sure that we are assessing families for all of their needs, not just their housing needs. So um, the first step is calling Safe Connect. I will say that if someone feels, if, if, if you work with, a family who already has a connection to one of our DV member organizations, they can call the member organization directly. So I just, uh, if but if they're not connected to a member organization yet, the first step would be to call Safe Connect. So once they get connected to the advocate, or once they call Safe Connect, um, Safe Connect will refer that family to the local program. So for rapid rehousing. You do have to do a face-to-face assessment. So they would do a face-to-face housing assessment um, at one of the sites or over the phone. Probably due to COVID, they do it over the phone right now. Um, and they would do an assessment. And if they are an appropriate match for rapid rehousing, they would go on a list. Um, and then what happens when that once they get on that list, CCADV host two meetings a month to enroll families in the program. So we take a look at the list and we take a look at how many openings we have and we will match families to to the program. So if they're matched to the program, we can get them enrolled within 48 hours of that match. And then what happens is the advocate will, the local advocate will set up a meeting with the family and the housing specialist to immediately start the search uh, to try to find that new apartment. So from start to finish, if we have openings, that process can take, it can be as quick as two weeks, but often we do not have openings, so it can take longer. But the important step is getting them on that list because once they're on that list, um, we will keep going back to that list. So as we have openings, we will pull families from that list to get them enrolled in the program. So that's important to mention just because this isn't always a quick solution. This isn't emergency housing. So if someone has an emergency Shelter is the place they would go. This is really, you know, an option for families when they're ready. So when when they're ready to leave and when they are ready to take that next step to their own apartment, um, it's an option, but sometimes it takes time. So I always I always make sure people understand, although it's rapid rehousing, it's not emergency housing, but it's that next step when people are ready to take that. So again, if we have openings, it can take two weeks, but if there's no openings, we keep their name on that list until we have an opening and we can get them in to the program. And that's, that's about it. Thank you.
0: Um, and I, I can I can only imagine the challenges uh, because in situations where you have people moving through different homes, uh, you will end up with somebody who's who has COVID. And and then, um, what are your policies and procedures in, regarding safety associated with the, with COVID and uh, any any testing challenges that you have experienced during the past eight to nine months?
3: Oh, that's a great question. So a lot of the work that we do in rapid housing is face-to-face. So uh, even, you know, taking families to look at apartments, um, doing our intake, doing our assessments, a lot of that is face-to-face. And during COVID, we, well, we, the state and CCADV and the federal government put a lot of waivers in place. So um, we are now allowed to view apartments virtually, so we don't have to go into the apartment to view it before we're able to lease someone up. Um, We are required as part of this project to do at least monthly face-to-face case management and visit the family in their home. But because of COVID we have, there's a waiver. So um, we still meet with families virtually but we don't have to go in their homes and meet them Face to face. A lot of the paperwork that we have to sign, we now are allowed to um, get verbal agreements over the phone so we don't have to do in person paperwork signing. Um, so, and also we're doing a lot with families around just making sure they have their needs met. So, in the beginning of this, when everyone was really quarantined at home, making sure that people had food, making sure that they, you know, were able to help their children with education. So, we did everything we could to avoid face to face contact while still maintaining ongoing case management and, and interaction with those families. Um, I honestly don't know the answer in terms of, of testing. Um, I, I I really, I wish I did, but I'll have to look into that answer, but we definitely are doing our best to maintain quality of service, but do as much as we can remotely with the families we serve. We also during COVID um, recognizing that so many families lost income during covid um normally we do have families pay a portion of income towards rent but for april may and june we waive that so we paid the full rent for all of our families in the program just to help them with that
0: stabilization okay thank you great, great answer uh we have a couple of questions in the queue here and i'm uh, this this could be for any either both of you or dr livingston uh the first question is: uh, Would verbal threats towards a spouse and spouse's character in front of young children be considered abuse?
2: I, I don't mind taking this one, at least um, from CCTV's per- perspective. Um, you know, like any, like all of the work that we do, I, I would say to some extent it depends um, on kind of the nature and severity of the um, the verbal threats um, and you know, what else is going on in in the home, you know, what are the other um, kind of better generated risks in terms of if there are weapons in the home, things like that. Um, From CCADV's perspective, we um, generally say that, you know, witnessing domestic violence itself and kind of verbal abuse, that sort of thing, does not necessarily in and of itself, you know, require a report to um, DCF Protective Services. Um, but certainly we are going to assess the whole situation and kind of um, all of those various factors at play to kind of, you know, make sure that, again, the, the child is, is safe and um, we are not putting them at greater risk by making a report. So, kind of depends.
0: <laughs> Nina, you want to expand?
1: To you that their partner is verbally threatening them, whether it's whether the kids are overhearing or not, that is someone you should be referring to Safe Connect. You can ask them there in the office whether they'd like to have to make the phone call right there using your office phone. In other words, you can do a kind of a warm handoff to Safe Connect. Um, if they don't want to do that, you can give them the Safe Connect number so that they can call themselves when they're ready.
0: Thank you. Um, what are the options for families waiting for rapid housing?
3: So, families that are waiting for housing, there's a, there's a few different options. So, for some of our families who are already in shelter, they you know they can stay in shelter while they're waiting for housing. For community clients, um, it's really a matter of offering them um, all the other services we provide. So, we can offer them safety planning while they're in their home. We can offer them. Um, you know, we can talk through things like shelter diversion. So if you can't stay where you're currently at, is there anything else we can help you, you know, can we help you? Um, Is there a family member you can stay with? Do you have a friend you can stay with? Just trying to talk through all those options of what someone might be able to do. Um, Sometimes if we need to, uh, the shelters will hotel people. If there's an urgent need to put someone for, you know, an urgent need for safety, we can put them in a hotel. And also, once they get on that wait list, so our wait list isn't just a CCADV wait list, we actually work off of a statewide housing wait list. So once a family's name gets on that wait list, they actually become eligible for our program, but also other housing programs across the state. So we've been fortunate that this is a new program, and we're still sort of ramping up. So we can can move people pretty quickly into the program. But it's nice, because if we don't have an opening, um, there may be other options across the state that they can have access to. Um, so sometimes it really is just a matter of making sure people are safe in place while we get them into that housing. Um, but we also explore other options to see if there's other resources that they'd be eligible for.
0: Thank you, Annie. And they, they were asking for your email, which uh, we're, we're sending um, directly to everyone, but just in case it's asabrowski at ctcadv.org. Yes. Um, so people are interested to email you directly, hopefully, about housing, not, not, not anything else uh, it's, and that we made it public. So thank you. Any, uh, Nina, any additional comments that you may have regarding this topic, which is so important?
1: Yes, I, I just wanted to add that the pandemic has added some new layers for us as clinicians when we're thinking about discussing domestic violence with our patients or the caregivers of our of our pa- of our patients. And we in our program, you know, recognize that during telehealth visits, we can't really safely screen people or ask questions about partner violence because we just don't know who's off camera or who is listening behind the door. So there are some things that you can do to increase safety in those situations. If you do want to talk about sensitive topics with caregivers, have them where Headphones, ask them if they're alone um, or in a safe situation to discuss sensitive topics. And you can also think about pushing out routine education regarding services, including domestic violence, to your caregivers through the AVS. So what we've done in our child abuse program, our social workers created a dot phrase with a short list of critical community resources that we we as clinicians can add to the AVS with the dot phrase, and that includes domestic violence resources. So we are universally providing this information to families, recognizing they may or may not be disclosing to us or be in a position to be able to talk about this, whether it's telehealth or a live visit. So consider putting information about these services in some kind of a routine way into your AVS. And if anybody wants to, um, you know, know more about that, we can share the dot phrase. I'd be happy to talk to people or our social workers could give that to you.
0: Great. Thank you, Nina. And uh, I want to thank everyone for participating. We had uh, close to 200 people on the, on the Grand Rounds, uh, which, was, which tells you the interest they have on this topic. Uh, Annie and Maria, thank you for all the great work that you do on behalf of our families the children, their parents, uh, and the women that, that are affected by this uh, in such a terrible way, uh, unfortunately. Uh, please stay safe uh, and remain uh, in tune. We'll send the email through uh, through the EADS, uh, uh, through our website. I've been, I've been corrected, so thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. If you have any questions, let us know. Again, stay safe, and we'll see you again on Tuesday for the next Grand Rounds, and we'll see you again on Friday for the COVID update with uh, Dr. Schreiber. Take care. Bye bye.
3: Thank you. You.